all for being here. Uh, uh, we are ready to start Luke today, and I'm excited about this. I have a tendency to spend most of my time when I teach either in Paul and the writings of Paul or in the Old Testament. And that's because I spent most of my Greek career translating Paul, and I spent most of my other language career translating the Old Testament out of Hebrew. And so those are natural go-to places for me. But the Gospels are places where I've spent a lot of time. I just don't typically teach so much out of them. So Brent recognized that, Pastor Brent, and challenged me recently. And he said, you know, wouldn't hurt to teach out of the Gospels a little bit. Now, he was more polite and diplomatic than that. But uh, uh, I took my pastor's counsel well, and uh, he was right. And so I'm enjoying this time to speak out of the Gospels. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is is one that's marvelous, and we'll be beginning that today. I've also sent off, and Baylor is publishing the the new daily devotional, and it should be done in paperback in time this year for you guys to get a copy for next year. So I'll be giving you each a copy before the end of the year, and we can read it together next year. The hardback doesn't come out till next year because of printing issues. So I'm sorry, I'll be giving you a, a paperback instead, but you can. Uh, uh, always rip the cover off and glue a piece of wood on top if you want to, and it will work just as well. Uh, so in the meantime, let's take snapshots from the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to have to take a step back. Now, I don't know what age you grew up. I'm looking out, and I'm seeing people from early years to late years. And I, I don't know what your house was like when you grew up. My house was one of music. We loved music. Uh, Dad was always whistling or singing. Uh, Mom loved music and made sure we kids were exposed to music. She made sure we, we had to take violin lessons. We had to, to do any number of different things musically. And my sister Catherine and I uh, had a great love that she reminded me of the other night when, when we were having dinner. She talked about how much we loved listening to loud music when we grew up. Now, we did not grow up in the era of Taylor Swift. Um, we did not grow up in the era of chill. We grew up listening to things like Deep Purple, Live from Japan. And if you've never heard Highway Star from that album, you've got a treat coming. But the key to it is turning it up loud enough to really discern Richie Blackmore's guitar and Ian Gillen's screams. But if you do, you will have a delightful time until your dad tells you you're going to lose your hearing if you continue to listen to music that loud. Which is what my sister and I heard repeatedly. And she reminded me of that over dinner. Uh, she said, do you remember how dad had warned us we were going to lose our hearing from listening to loud music? To which I appropriately responded, what? And, and, <laughs> and she, she expected it, I think. It wasn't really coming from left field that I would make such a joke. But she and I were commenting on the fact that we probably at this point in our life have some degree of high frequency hearing loss or noise induced hearing loss. 
And, and it's amazing how that happens. I'm dealing with some lawsuits right now that, that uh, where military veterans had been given these 3M earplugs to try and reduce the hearing loss. And it turns out the earplugs uh, uh, were not only worthless and useless, but may have actually even been counterproductive and amplified some music. And so we've got hundreds of thousands of military vets who have hearing issues as a result. And and it's interesting because they would test their hearing before they went into the military, and they would test it right after they came out of the military. And so they were able to see the changes just from that time. And uh, another time to thank everybody, men and women, who've served our country and the, the armed forces and, and so many other ways because we are a, a, a better country and a better people because of that. But uh, hearing your losing your hearing is something that happens. And, I mean, hearing aid business is big business. And I was thinking about this because I really want to hear the gospel according to Luke. I want you to hear the gospel according to Luke. Luke writes his gospel in some interesting, special ways. And so over the next month or month and a half or two months even, we're going to explore the gospel of Luke. But as we do so, I'll be looking for these nuanced differences and these opportunities for us to hear the gospel of Luke. So your roadmap for class today is pretty simple. I need to talk first about the background of Luke. Uh, give you some idea of what's going on in the book and why it's going on that way. And then we're going to listen to a couple of passages together and look at those before we apply those passages in a final way and we're done uh, uh, for this class. So with that as our roadmap, let's start with that uh, initial background information. Now, one of the things I love to do, and some of you are going to just cancel my man card over this, but I'm sorry. This is true confessions. One of the things I love to do is go to the grocery store. I just love grocery stores. I've loved them ever since I was a kid. One of the earliest toys I remember having was a little pretend grocery store with little pretend groceries and I could line them all up and they would be perfectly set and I could do them in size order or I could do them in color order. And I just, I love stocking the shelves of the grocery store. So it should come as no shock to you that midway through middle school, I took a job working at a grocery store. And I want to tell you, I can sack groceries blindfolded. I mean, I got it down. I can throw it from one hand to the other, put them in the bag the whole time. Because I was doing that as much as I was playing basketball as a kid. And I got to stock real groceries on real grocery store shelves. And I loved it. I loved learning the psychology of grocery stores. Did you know there's a... a Carol, do you not laugh at that? There is a psychology to grocery stores. It is not an accident that every grocery store puts the milk way back in the back corner so you have to walk past every grocery just to go get the milk. It is no accident they've got all those little single things for you to buy and all the little magazines for you to read at the checkout while you're waiting your turn to be checked out. It is no accident that when you get to the Campbell's soup aisle, they put chicken noodle soup and cream of mushroom soup at the bottom and they put 
cream of elephant soup or something like that that you never buy up at the top because nobody's going to stoop down to buy cream of elephant soup, but you'll go in to buy the cream of mushroom soup to add to your casserole. And so you'll still, you'll, you'll pick that up. Now you might buy the, I don't think they make cream of elephant obviously, but I do believe they make cream of asparagus as if anybody's buying that. They'll put that at eye height. Thank you. Because you just might say, oh, I haven't had this in my life. Maybe I'll give it a whirl. There's psychology to grocery stores. And I love that. I love to go out of the country. Go to England. Did you go to Stonehenge? No, but I went to a grocery store. Didn't have time for Stonehenge. Too many grocery stores to see. I love to see foreign grocery stores. They have foreign groceries in them. They have different jellies than you've ever eaten in your life. I just enjoy grocery stores. I would love to go back in time for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons I would love to go back in time is to go grocery shopping. Now, if you go to Athens right now, you can find these markets. The the Greek word for marketplace is agora. You can find these agoras everywhere in Greece and other places, but you can go to them. But but they're not new. Groceries have been bought and things have been bought in stores for a long, long, long time. I love flea markets where they set up booths. Have you ever been to a flea market where they sell blank books? I'm talking books. They got nothing in them except blank pages. I love those books. I have more blank page books than anybody in here, I dare say. Because I just look at it. And by the way, those blank books do confirm you cannot tell a book by its cover. (laughs) But I buy those blank books for different reasons. I bought them for daughters who like to sketch. And so I bought ones that are appropriate for sketching. I've got, I bought one for the library as a sign-in book. And I, and I just searched and searched before I could find a huge one. I needed a jumbo book to be a sign-in book at the library. Well, these are everyday events maybe in a sense for us. It's, it, maybe you haven't done that, but you can certainly imagine what I'm talking about. But can you go back in time to the time of Luke? When he would have gone to the Agora, to the marketplace... Because he wants to write the gospel. And he's got to find something to write it on. Walmart did not exist. Target was nowhere to be found. But there were booths and there were stalls. And you could buy some papyrus. We get the word paper from it. Papyrus was a, or is a, (laughs) A reed that's grown, especially around the Nile. And it's kind of a, the the stalk is shaped like a triangle, but you can cut it long ways. You can take the wet stalks and set them all next to each other, real thin cuts. And you can press them all together. And they'll press together and make paper. Now the paper would fall apart. So you press them all together. If you want to make 
paper from papyrus in antiquity, what they would do, they would take those stalks and they would press them all together like this. And then they would take another set and press them all together like this. And that would bind and hold the paper together. And so you could go and you could buy that. But papyrus, while cheaper, was tougher to use for anything of volume. It'd be great for making notes. But you want to write a book. By the way, the word book wasn't really there at the time. You want to, they, they were initially called them codexes, but you want, to, you want to make a book? What you did is you made a scroll. You bought a scroll, actually. And a scroll was typically made of animal skins. But a scroll had to be rolled up. And so there was a limit to how long you could get a scroll. Scrolls would come in, you know, small, medium, large, jumbotron. But you get the biggest scroll you're going to get. And the most you can really do is 25 feet long. Now that's pretty long. I mean, 25 feet is what? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16... It's longer than the opening of the stage. And you can see why after a while that's kind of bulky. I mean, you start writing over here and you're writing 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 and you get down there. You pray you didn't make a mistake over there. But you've got your scroll. But once you roll it up, you can only get so far. So 25 feet, that's a jumbo scroll. That's as big as they came. Now that becomes very important. Because one of the background questions on the Gospel of Luke is, who wrote it and why is it in the way it's in? In the form it's in. Because you'll see that Luke and Acts were both written by the same person. They're both the longest books in the New Testament. Luke takes up a 25-foot scroll. So you're writing Luke. You run out of room over here, chapter 25. So what's it time to do? Get a new scroll. You get a new scroll, and you start writing again. And you start writing with, hey... In that earlier scroll, I was doing this. Now let me pick back up where I was. And you keep writing until you get to the end. Then what do you do? We don't know. (laughs) Because we only have Luke and Acts. We don't know if he wrote something else or not. But Acts seems to end kind of abruptly. There are some different reasons perhaps why. But he ran out of scroll. Now, when you write a book, by the way, um, uh, I've got two books right now that are that are at the publishing house. Um, one of them's at IVP, and they just sent it back to me with all of the editor's comments. And one of the things they do when you publish a book is they basically take the entire book and run it through the internet to see if you've plagiarized anything. 
They want to see if you've taken word for word something you didn't credit. And they put a note in there that I had taken word for word from a couple of different selections on this website called biblical-literacy.com. And I told them I happen to have written the things on biblical-literacy.com, including those, so that I pulled a sentence here or pulled a sentence there from things I had written earlier. No worries. We'll be fine. Why? I'm a lawyer, and I own the copyright. So there's no issue there. But copyright law did not exist back in the time of Luke. And so as Luke's writing his, his, his books, or his scrolls, by the way, by the way, before I leave that subject of size of scrolls, a lot of scholars, not Christian scholars, a lot of uh, pagan scholars, attribute Christianity to the rise of books. And the reason why is, historically, you want to read Cicero, get the scroll of Cicero. But what the church and believers started doing when they got scripture is they started wanting to go back and check this verse or wanting to go back and check that verse or wanting to go back and see what did Luke say about that? Compare Luke to what Matthew said. And that's not easy to do if you're unrolling a 25-foot scroll and looking for the column. But if you're in a book, it's quite easy to do. So codexes became, books became used with Christian scriptures and Christian writings. And that's really what ushered their usage in as people realized how effective they were. So now we've got the Gospel of Luke. And one of the questions is who wrote it? Well, with a modern book, we know who wrote it. We know who wrote the biblical literacy materials that are on there because it's got my name on them. And 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 in the books it'll say copyright Mark Lanier or IVP or whomever it is that, that copyrights it with me. So so you you've got names that identify things. Back in Luke's day, they did not do that. If you're writing a letter, you would identify yourself at the start of a letter. But books just wasn't done. If you were identified anywhere, you were identified in the title of the book. So on the issue of who wrote Luke, we've got two things to consider. Now you can look at the title, and there's an affixed title. And in the Greek, it says, Kata Luca Euangelion, which means according or handed down from Luke, gospel. So it's the gospel according to or handed down from Luke. But you don't know for certain when or who put that title on it because it's not really part of the manuscript itself. In other words, when Luke was getting ready to write and he gets over here foot one, he didn't write at the top, Kata Luca Euangelion. He starts out. And the title gets affixed later. It could be affixed to the scroll itself. 
could be affixed by someone who makes a copy because they want to be sure and identify it and not pass it off as their own or as an unknown. If you're making a copy of something as valuable as Luke, you care enough to copy something that's scripture that talks about Jesus, you certainly want it properly attributed. You don't want to write something that someone's going to think is flim-flam. You don't want to write something that someone's going to think is made up. So it's very early. In fact, the title was affixed before any of the copies we've now got came into existence. So our earliest Greek copies of Luke have the title on there, which gives you a pretty good idea of who wrote Luke. But if we really want to examine it beyond the title, there are two things we can do. First, we can read the the gospel itself, Luke and Acts, for clues and second, we can look at church history. Um, history is something, I can tell you stories about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I can tell you stories about Abraham Lincoln. Not because I was there, but because I know from history. You say, well, history is written by the winners. Okay, well, I'm not saying history is perfect. But history has some measure of reliability, and we can think about it and look at it. So those are the two areas which allow us to give consideration into this question of who wrote Luke. So if we go to the beginning of his 25-foot scroll in English, this is the way the English Standard Version has translated it. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Compile is a word, means to put together. So before Luke's written Luke, we know that other people had put together notes that were going to be used by Luke. You know, Paul will talk about getting his notes, his parchments, his, you know, his, his uh, 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 various writings collected. There's good reason to believe Matthew was the note taker among the apostles. And so, so uh, you know, he, he, he had the notepads and the equipment. He was a tax collector. That's what they did. Is they gave receipts and took notes. Well, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. We know that Mark had probably already written his gospel, and it was out the time of Luke. Matthew, perhaps, out at the time of Luke. And as much as many have undertaken to compile, to take all of these pieces and put them together, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those uh, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's gotten some copies or he's gotten information as well. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent friend of God, what Theophilus means, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, this is the way he begins, and it's it's very useful to us to understand what Luke is saying he's done here. Now, that's at the start of the 25-foot scroll. If you go to the end where he's running out of paper, literally, have you ever written a card? Like, I was writing a thank you note recently, 
and I had one of them little note cards, and I was getting down to the end, and I realized I was in the middle of a sentence, and it really wasn't going to look good, so I'm all of a sudden, my letters that are this big become this big, and I'm trying to scrunch it in there without it looking too obvious, and ultimately just tore it up and started all over again. Had the same problem the second time, which tells you how idiot I am in some ways. So that's the start of the scroll. He gets to the end of the scroll, and here's the way it ends. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The end? No, get the next scroll. Next scroll. In the first scroll, it says book, but it's the Greek word for scroll. In the first scroll, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen, he presented himself alive to them. Uh, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And now he launches into the rest. But I want you to note something very special here as we're looking at the authorship and who wrote this. He's talking about Jesus appearing to all of these people in Jerusalem. But what he says is he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them. Which lets you know Luke was not among them or the author of this book was not among them. Now, if we continue to read, he continues to talk about them, they, they, them, them, they, they, them. He charts Paul going on his missionary trips. Them, they. Paul and Timothy, them, they. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, them, they. Until you get to Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, you start out with them and they. Until you get down to about uh, verses 6 through 10. And they, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. By the way, uh, name originally back to Troy. Uh, Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here we see uh, uh, the author is now joined the merry band. The narrator uh, has joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy and will stay with them as far as Philippi. Now it's interesting. If we put a map up here, satellite view of the world, we can put Troas over here. It's a coastal town on Turkey, modern Turkey. And that's Troas, and that's where the author joined the missionary band. 
And the determination was that they were to go over to Macedonia. This, by the way, is leaving Asia and going into Europe. You have to somehow get over the Bosphorus and you have to get over there to Europe. And so as we read about it, what he says is, so setting sail from Troas, <laughs> and exventes is uh, setting sail, it actually means like lifting up, going up. And it's used for sailing as well as a lot of other things. But, you know, you hoist the sail and, and you go up. Anyway, uh, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. Euthydromesamen is a straight course. Went straight. Now, this becomes relevant, so that's why I'm bothering to tell you. Direct voyage, straight shot to Samothrace or Samothracane. Now, Troas, got to zoom in. Oh, that was freaky. Hold on. I don't know about you, but when you're sitting right next to it, it's like, Whoa, you kind of feel like a weatherman already when you're up here. There is a front blowing down from Troas. Um, all right, Whoa. it feels like it's coming at me. I'm just naturally flinching. So we've got Troas down here on the coast. They sailed direct to Samothrace, which is right here. Now, the natural thing to do could have been to chart through the coast and take a coastal route or they could have stopped here and then there, but they sailed straight. It's a one-day sailing voyage. There are optional routes. Luke, the narrator, the author, is not just reporting something and inserting himself into the story make-believe to make you pretend, think he's actually aware of stuff. He's now went from general details about where they were and where they went to very specific nautical terms, not just nautical terms, and we'll see one again in a moment, but but terms like they took a, a, a non-stop, they went direct, And they went exactly one day's journey. And so it's got indicia of credibility just built into it. Um, Samothrace and and the following day. So see, one day journey to Samothrace. The next day to Neapolis. Which is again a one day journey. We go back to the map. Samothrace is here. Neapolis comes right here. So they didn't do any of the stops. They went straight from there to there which is the coastal town from which you would go to Philippi, which is inland, up in the hills. So, um, whoops, let's stay back. So what we've got is very clear joinder by the author at this point in time. And the author stays with them in Philippi until Paul leaves Philippi. And this, you'll remember in Philippi, uh, uh, they start the church there. Uh, Paul gets arrested and Paul and Silas are in jail, of which Paul should never have been in jail as a Roman citizen under those terms in, in chains at least. And so Paul is put in and, and the jailer comes to know Jesus as does his family because of what happened uh, when the, the cells and the earthquake split everything apart at night while 
Paul and Silas are singing out loud hymns to God. And, and instead of making a break for it, Paul and Silas are still there. And, and the jailer's amazed. But ultimately, they came and apologized to them. They took them out. They asked them to leave the city. This is because others got involved and were very upset with Paul. So they went out of the prison. They visited Lydia. When they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And the Greek here is they departed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. See, they accompanied him. He, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I've just jumped. So, so this is Paul. Leaving the author of Luke behind, the author of Luke Acts behind, and going on. We've shifted back to the days. We stay with the days until chapter 20, which is what I pulled up here. Where Paul decided to do his return through Macedonia. So Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Now, that the author not only is rejoining from Philippi, where he stayed behind, but he's very careful to document all of the people that were with him. And this is very typical of Luke, and it's something that's very important when we get to reading some of the passages of Luke. Because what Luke would do, normally, um, okay, so this book that came back from the publisher, uh, uh, one of the books that came back, they, they pointed out a couple of places where my footnotes didn't have page numbers of what I was citing. So I had to go back and find the page numbers. So I've been having... And it's such a headache. I mean, you got no clue what a headache that is. You got to find the book. Then you got to find the page number. And if you didn't put the page number down there, you just know it's somewhere in that 313 pages. And I readily confess on one of the books, I couldn't find it. And I was running out of time because I had to get it in. And I thought, what am I going to do? I found another quote that's even better than the initial one that I'd had in the book. And so I thought, well, I'm just pulling out the original quote I'm putting in this one because I know this is on page 319. Put in the page <laughs> for the explanation on the side. One, better quote. Two, couldn't find the other one in the time I had. Um, but back in the time of Luke, they don't have footnotes. But what Luke does as an author is he will put his sources in the material, calling them out by name. There is a theory that's out there by some that Luke and Acts were actually written for Theophilus to provide him the legal background material he might need in defending Paul in Rome, which explains why the books end with Paul imprisoned in Rome and explains some of the purpose behind the books. I was asked recently, did I agree with that as a lawyer? My comment was, I don't really know. I can see some reasons that it would not be true, but I can also see some validity. One of the validity uh, uh, reasons in my head, one of the valid reasons in my head, is the way Luke documents by name so many people who could testify to whatever it might need to be testified to. 
whether he was doing that for Paul for legal proceedings or whether he was doing that for his readers, Theophilus and others, just so they could go check it out. Go talk to the widow of Nain about Jesus resurrecting her son outside the gates. You know, you've got sources provided by Luke in excruciating detail, especially if they're believers. He doesn't tend to cite the non-believers. Even people who don't believe at first but come to faith later, he'll use their names. And it's something distinct and it becomes relevant to us. So he's, he's clear. He's detailed. He's giving you footnotes. He's giving you data points. He's telling you who all's there. He's identifying them. Um, uh, uh, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. And then he says, we sailed away from Philippi. Now here he's using a different nautical term. He's using the term, typical term for sail, but he doesn't say we went directly. He doesn't use that term. This wasn't a non-stop. They were taking the, uh, we, we don't have enough trains. What's it called? The local. They, you know, where it just stops. We sailed from Philippi and after the days of unleavened bread, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to him at Troas. So it took five days instead of two. Because they didn't go straight way. All of this just is an indicator to you and to me and to a fair reader that this is someone who's really plugged in and who's really got this. And, and it looks like the author stays with Paul all the way into Rome. At the end of it, it says, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. He wasn't locked into the pit, the Roman pit, which means Paul had enough money our people were supplying his money such that he could basically live under house arrest in a slum tenement instead of uh, uh, being thrown into the hole. So we've got Paul now with the author in Rome where Paul's imprisoned. And there are several New Testament books. Philemon is one where Paul wrote back... Uh, to a slave owner telling him to let his slave go. The slave being one that Onesimus that uh, Paul had converted. And if you are the God had converted through Paul, however you like that word. But if you see, you'll see Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ. Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. My fellow workers. Gives you an idea that Luke was one of these ones who was with Paul. And it helps substantiate what we know otherwise. You can also look at Colossians 3.24. I think it's 3.24. No, it's 4.14. Colossians 4.14. And this is another prison epistle. And he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. As does Demas. Again, some indication that Luke's with Paul during this imprisonment. So if we look at who wrote Luke Luke, and we consider the clues, we've got the clues there. Let me tell you a little bit about church history. And uh, yeah, we don't have a ton of time. Um, but this isn't our last class probably. We'll get to do this again next week. So um, if I, I'll cover at least some Luke, okay? But this is important stuff. It's important that we understand 
that, that when we're, some people will challenge you on the Bible and they'll say, well, it's just a bunch of made up stories by people, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not. This is reliable information. So um, uh, let's shift into the mid 100s, 144, 150 in that range. There was a Christian heretic named Marcion. And Marcion was a heretic and he wrote off, well, he wrote off all of the Old Testament. He said the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Different gods. Uh, uh, and then he wrote off a bunch of the New Testament too. Because it clearly teaches otherwise. He was not a big fan, for example, of, the, of Matthew. Okay. But he did take us some verses out of Luke. He kind of liked some of what Luke had to say. So some in the church wrote a response to Marcion. And different people actually did. And in one of the responses, there is a prologue that talks about this. And it talks about the fact that Marcion relies upon Luke's gospel in some ways. And this prologue, which should date in the mid-100s. Indeed, Luke was an Antiochian Syrian, a doctor by profession, a disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom, serving the Lord blamelessly. Never had a wife, never fathered children, died at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit in Boeotia. Therefore, although Gospels had already been written, indeed by Matthew in Judea, but by Mark in Italy, moved by the Holy Spirit, he wrote down this Gospel in the parts of Achaia, um, Achaia excuse me, signifying in the preface that the others were written before his, but also that it was of the greatest importance for him to expound with the greatest diligence the whole series of events in his narration for the Greek believers. So that they would not be led astray by the lure of Jewish fables or seduced by the fables of the heretics and stupid solicitations fall away from the truth. And so at once at the start he took up the extremely necessary story from the birth of John who is the beginning of the gospel, the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ and was a companion, blah, 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 blah. I don't mean that disrespectfully. With all due respect, blah, 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 blah. Um, now he's not the only one. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, born one, about 130, died about 202. He wrote uh, Against the Heretics. He wrote a number of different books that we've still got. And Irenaeus uh, also confronted Marcion's dissection of Luke. And he wrote, quote, he mutilates the gospel, which is according to Luke. So again, we know within less than 100 years of the gospel being written, Probably less than 75 years or so, 85 years of the gospel being written. It's well known to be Luke's gospel. Uh, Eusebius is the first really significant church historian that we know of. And he, his bread and butter was church history. He researched it. He wrote on it. He's not always right. But, but he had a really good grasp of it. Here's what he had to say. Luke, who was of Antiochian parentage and a physician by profession, and who was especially intimate with Paul and well acquainted with the rest of the apostles, has left us in two inspired books, proofs of that spiritual healing art which he learned from them. In other words, a physician is taught to heal the body, but he was taught to heal spiritual healing uh, uh, and that's what he does even as he gives those words to us today. So as we read Luke, 
Eusebius would urge us to be healed spiritually, understanding the life of Christ. One of these books is the gospel, which he testifies that he wrote as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to him, all of whom, as he says, he followed accurately from the first. The other book is the Acts of the Apostles, which he composed not from the accounts of others, but from what he had seen himself. Now, there's some really cool things in Luke. Luke's got the story of the virgin birth, unlike the other Gospels. And don't you know how much that fits in with all of this? First of all, in Jewish circles, not just anybody would talk to women. I'll go a step further, especially about things like sexual intimacy. But one person who could do that by profession is a doctor. And so I, I, I'm not surprised at all that Luke's got the account of the virgin birth. I'm sure he's the one who sat down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said, Okay, I'd really like the details on this. I mean, just exactly how did this go down? So we see some fascinating things here. Now, we also see some things because Luke would have been accumulating notes. He would have accumulated Matthew's notes if Matthew had made them. He would have accumulated other notes as well. He would have accumulated other gospels. But it's really interesting to me to look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Paul says... I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup's the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you're just reading that, that's all well and good and nice and tidy. But I decided I wanted to look at that, not just... Uh, did I see Drew Davis in here? There's my buddy Drew. Did you take Corinthians under Dr. Floyd? Were you in my Corinthians class where we translated Corinthians? Yeah. Um, we translated this uh, 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 class one semester. We it's a great program we were in. You would just take books of the Bible, but you'd take them in the language in which they were written. So you had to translate them, and it was pretty cool. So I was fascinated recently when I was looking at this and decided to do a little homework. And I prepared this chart, which I'll show you now. The Lord's Supper in Luke and Paul. Now, Luke writes the following. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you're looking at this in the Greek, he's got the tauto estintosoma. Um, he's got the exact language, which is translated here. But this Greek could be written in so many different ways. You could have used different words. It still had the same English translation. 
You could have put them in different orders for different emphasis and still had the same English translation. You could have used different endings on different words and still had the same English translation. The odds of somebody just happening to come up with those many words in common with someone else is really, that's lottery pick type odds. And so when Paul's writing in Corinthians, look at, let's compare them this way first. Let me get it as big as I can for you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can start looking at these two. Tauto. Tauto. Estin tosoma. Estin tosoma. Now the moo. Paul bumps it up a little bit earlier, but it's the same word. And Paul emphasizes it as he bumps it up. This my, that's that's a word for my, my. So for Paul, this is my body. He's emphasizing my. But other than that, the same. To who per hemon, to who per hemon. Now, we have given, didomenon, given in Luke. Paul doesn't have it, but everything else, Paul's got. It's the same. They clearly had the same notes. They clearly were using the same source. The writer of Luke and Paul, who's writing 1 Corinthians, either one's using the other one or they're using the same notes. If one was using the other one, it'd seem a bit odd that they didn't get it precisely the same. But there, this is not happenstance. This is not, in, in Greek, this is not a coincidence. Look at the next passage. Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The translation of 1 Corinthians, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You look at the Greek, meta to meta to Depnesi, Depnesi. Legon tauto tu, legon tauto tu, poterion, poterion, ekine, ekine, diatheke, diatheke. Now Paul has estin, into hamatia mu, into emu hamatia. For emphasis. But they're clearly using the same notes. So we've got the same source on these things. So who wrote Luke? To me, it's a no-brainer. Luke wrote Luke. And somebody wants to see it otherwise, they're really swimming against the tide, and I'd ask myself, do they have an agenda? Now, how was Luke written? I don't have time to get into that because we've got to cover some Luke and we're running out of time. So let's listen to a couple of passages real quick. Uh, real quick. Here's your first one. Jesus answers and says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. You say, well, what are we doing with that? So Simon had Jesus over at his house and a woman comes in, a sinner comes in, and she's, she's blessing Jesus with her tears, washing his feet. And Simon silently in his mouth or in his mind is thinking, huh. If he was all that smart, he'd know this is a sinner. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, 
I'll answer it. What is it? I'm listening. I'm all ears. Um, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I want to talk to you about three quick things out of this passage. And then we'll go. This real quick. Number one, Jesus does want to speak into our lives. I'm sure you've all seen the cards of the wise man at the top of the mountain and someone hikes all the way up to him to get wisdom. You don't, Jesus is not some Himalayan wise man who's out on a mountain that you got to hike to go find. Jesus wants to speak to you. He wants to speak into your life. He wants to say something to you. He's got things to say to you. He's seeking you out. He's looking to talk to you. He wants to rock your world. He wants to blow your mind. He wants to transform your life. He wants to give you peace you've never understood. He wants to give you joy that's beyond description. He wants to give you strength that you need to meet the difficulties in this life. He wants to give you comfort in the midst of your suffering. He wants to bring you healing from any abuse. He wants to speak into your life. And that is incredible to me. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. Well, now, getting the backstory, you understand that Simon has been sitting harshly in judgment of the woman who came in to bless Jesus with her tears. And Simon's been sitting harshly in judgment of the Lord Jesus. And in fact, who Simon should have been sitting in judgment of is Simon. I know it's trite, but you're familiar with the expression, be careful pointing at others because whenever you point your finger at others, you got three fingers pointing back at yourself. It may be trite, but it's something to recognize. The backstory is one where Simon should not have been judging Jesus and the woman. Simon should have been judging himself for his heart. He wasn't doing diddly squat for Jesus after inviting him in for dinner. And then the final point, the third layer of this that I would emphasize as I'm looking at this passage in this story is the good ending. I'll show you countless times where Luke doesn't name the person that confronts Jesus. Gives them ambiguity. Luke names names almost every time because it's a source you could go check. It's a believer. And it tells me that Jesus not only had something to say to Simon... But Simon had ears to hear it. And it rocked his world. Because that's what I want to do. Well, I can't wait to talk to you next week because we'll pick up some of these. Let me just say that I had a slide of the Bob stuck inside of Mobile with those Memphis Blues again. You'll have to wait till next week. Let's give you your points for home. Here they are. Point for home number one. God does speak to you. He absolutely speaks to you. He call you by name and speak to you. We need to be in his word. 
Let his Holy Spirit convict us as he speaks to us. You listen, you pray. Listen, not just with ears like this, but that spiritual healing that physician Luke offers. Pray as you listen to the word. God, speak to me. And God does. And he gives you choices. First choice is whether or not to listen. But the choice we need to take is to listen and to learn. And let him change not just our world, but the world through us. Because that's what he'll do. All right, we've got more next week. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for being here today. It means a lot to me. And uh, uh, God, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings on everyone here. Father, as our Heavenly Father, we bless you today. A Sunday, a Father's Day, uh, but a day of rejoicing as we gather together around your word. Speak to us. May we hear it. May we personalize it. And may, it tra- may you transform our world and our lives. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus we pray, amen.